This morning, we are continuing our series in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And our sermon text this morning is found in Philippians 3, verses 1 to 9. Now, this passage is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read along there. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold. It is the most valuable thing in your life. It is more precious even than much fine gold. And the word of God is sweeter than the dripping of the honeycomb. It is more desirable than anything you possess. It is sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen now to the word of God. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes and he says these words, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of our hearts, as we study your word, may be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of the most interesting and even distinctive things about the ministry and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth as it is 
recorded for us in the Gospels is how often he called his disciples to relinquish, to give up, to be willing to lose everything in order to follow him. Most modern evangelistic efforts, of course, primarily focus on the personal benefits of following Jesus given to the believer, the joy and peace and forgiveness and eternal life and so on that are offered. But Jesus himself, though he spoke of those things at times, very often emphasized the cost of following him. And the cost, according to Jesus, as he said again and again, is everything. Everything, Jesus claimed. Family, wealth, social status, security, success, your plans for your life, all of that, according to Jesus, was nothing in comparison to the value of following him. As we heard in our gospel reading this morning from Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had a regular habit, not once or twice, but again and again, if you read the gospels, of saying things like this to his disciples. You'd think he'd pat them on the back. You know, they just were following him and and coming after him. But he said things like, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And just to be clear, Jesus doesn't say things like this only once in a while. If you read the Gospels, you discover that he says things like this all the time. In Luke 14, there's this really kind of funny, in some ways, exchange uh, in this story where Luke tells us that great crowds have begun to follow Jesus, right? Hundreds, even thousands of people are coming after him. Now, most itinerant preachers would be delighted by an, an audience of that size. As we've seen in our modern age, right, the size of your audience is equivalent to your social power. But Jesus had a very different approach than many modern preachers today. He seemed as though he wanted them to be very careful before they followed after him. Luke tells us that Jesus turned to the crowds and he said to them, right, thousands of people coming after him. He turns, he looks them in the eyes and he says, if anyone comes after me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now there's an strategy for evangelism. Beloved, I would suggest this morning that we need to be very careful when we hear Jesus say things like this. We need to be very careful to take him at his word, to trust that 
he actually means these things when he says them. Because he does. He did then and he does now. He is absolutely serious when he speaks in these terms. And the nature of what it means to follow Christ has not changed in 2,000 years since he said them. If you are to come after Christ, you should know this. You must bear your own cross. No one can bear it for you. It is impossible, in other words, to follow Jesus without your life being disrupted and turned upside down in absolutely fundamental ways. And if you think that you just want a nice, easy life with Jesus that is like the life you have now, you had best consider what you're getting into. Because whatever you have been given, in terms of wealth or family or relationships or security, whatever plans you may have made on your own part for an easy and successful life, you must, friend, you must, I tell you, hold those things very loosely because you do not know when you begin to follow Jesus what it is exactly that he will require you to lose. But he will do it. I promise you. You will suffer loss at his hands again and again. For that is what discipleship is. But interestingly, if you begin to read the scriptures through this lens, the way that Jesus spoke about what it meant to follow God, what it meant to be a disciple, you'll find that it's always been this way for God's people. All throughout the stories of the scriptures, discipleship has always meant loss at the hands of God, total disruption of people's lives. Remember Abraham, the father of the faithful, left a comfortable and secure life in Ur in response to the call of God. For him, discipleship meant this. It meant wandering, landless, in a strange country for decades, all the time experiencing the despair and frustration of infertility. And then finally, after many years receiving a son, only then to have God require him to sacrifice that beloved son as an offering. For Joseph, as we heard this morning, discipleship meant being betrayed by his brothers, them turning against him, selling him into slavery, into slavery, friends, in a foreign land, his father thinking he was dead for decades. And then, though he sought to serve faithfully as a slave there, being betrayed by his master and thrown into prison. And then, though he sought to serve faithfully in the prison, being betrayed and forgotten by his fellow prisoners. Until finally, he was lifted up and freed and restored to his family many, many years later. But note this, he never got those years back. He never got them back, friends. They were always lost to him. For Moses, discipleship meant being driven out of the only home he had ever known, rejected by both the Egyptians and the Israelites, going out and shepherding in the wilderness for 40 years before God spoke to him in the bush. 40 years 
For Job, discipleship meant the loss of quite literally everything. His wealth, his children, his health, all of it. For David, discipleship meant losing his home and his wife and his social position, his closest friend, all to be driven out to hide in the wilderness and among the Philistines of all people for at least a decade while Saul sought to kill him. Friends, you'd be hard-pressed to find any example of a man or a woman who followed Jesus in the Scriptures, whether in the Old or New Testaments, whose lives were not substantially, fundamentally disrupted by God, who did not suffer loss as a fundamental part of their discipleship to Christ. It is all over the place. But Jesus does not only disrupt our lives when we follow after him, he also promises that he will return and repay whatever it is that we give up. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus famously tells the rich young ruler that in order to inherit life, inherit eternal life, rather, he lacks only this. He must sell all that he has, give to the poor, and then follow Jesus. For this man, like any man who would come after Christ, to follow Jesus will cost him everything. But when Peter cried out in response to this scene, he says, look, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. And this is really fascinating exchange. Jesus doesn't then just pat Peter on the head and say, Peter, just calm down. It's not that big a deal. I mean, you didn't have that nice a house anyway. Right? He didn't say that. No, Jesus looks Peter in the eye and he makes him a promise, a promise that rings down through the centuries. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the way that Jesus spoke. On the one hand, he demanded everything of those who would follow after him. And on the other hand, he promised to give them infinitely more than they could ever give up. Because he promised ultimately to give himself. Now, all of these dynamics, all of these words of Jesus, his promises and his demands form the backdrop for our passage this morning in Philippians 3. You see, Paul begins his words to the Philippians by calling them again to joy, as he does throughout this letter. Rejoice in the Lord, he says to them, riding from a prison cell. He says, not just be happy, but Rejoice in Christ, in union with Jesus, in union with their crucified and risen Savior, the one who is full of joy now at his Father's right hand. Paul then shifts what he has been talking about and begins to warn the Philippians against the Judaizers, his old opponents, those who show up and 
and Galatians and in Colossians and other places, those who sought to require baptized Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians by ethnicity, to submit themselves to the Jewish ceremonial law. Food laws, laws about circumcision, laws that had been abrogated and ended by Christ. This, of course, is one of the fundamental debates of that first century. Look out for the dogs, Paul says, speaking of those Judaizers. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You see, Paul's language here is pulling no punches. He wants his readers to understand the terrible danger of what these people are demanding. And Paul's understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, for a Gentile believer to submit to circumcision as though that were something that would please God would be nothing but a mutilation of the flesh. That's what it would be. Not a religious act in any way, but just a mutilation of their body. And that those who would require that of a person are dogs and evildoers. For we are the circumcision, Paul says. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, here's the really provocative thing about Paul saying, we are the circumcision. He is writing not only to Jews, but to Gentiles as well, who are not circumcised. And when he says, we, meaning the baptized, those who have faith in Christ, when he, when he says, we are the circumcision, what he is saying is that we are true Israel. We are the true inheritors of the promises to Abraham. For we are united by faith to Jesus, the true and last Israelite, the one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. There's so much packed into that phrase that Paul is saying, so much biblical theology for us today when he says we are the circumcision not only Jew and Gentile, but men and women, all kinds of people baptized in the name of Christ who are now the Israel of God. Paul then begins to describe his life history before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was, of course, at that time, up until Acts 9, the ideal Jew, so to speak. Circumcised on the eighth day, just as God's law required, of the people of Israel, and specifically of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that remained faithful to the Davidic, to the Davidic line when the kingdom split after the death of Solomon. He was, as Paul says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the best of the best. As to the law, Paul was a Pharisee, meaning he was scrupulous in every aspect of the law. As to zeal, he expressed his piety for God by persecuting heretics like the followers of Jesus. As to righteousness under the law, Paul says he was blameless, by which he doesn't mean that he considered himself sinless, but that he was blameless in terms of doing what the law required, especially the ceremonial law of God. 
And when he had erred, he had made the proper sacrifices for his sin. The important thing to see here is that Paul is saying that he had built a life for himself. And it was a good life. A successful life. He had studied at the right school. He had the right diploma hanging on his wall. He came from a respectable family with a genealogy and a history and a tradition and people that loved him and had invested him in him all his life. He was a rising star. He had connections and influence and every hope of things continuing in that way. He was the kind of religious leader that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 20. He walked around in long robes and loved it. He loved the greetings in the marketplaces. He loved having the best seat at the synagogue. Before Jesus, Paul is saying, I had family and wealth and power and social status and religious status and security and confidence in who I was. But then Paul met the risen Christ and everything changed. His life since then, we know from reading Acts, from reading the other epistles, has been totally torn apart. It's been completely disrupted. His family, oh, he lost them for sure. There's hardly anything he could have done to bring more shame on his family than being baptized in the name of Jesus. His inheritance, that was gone, lost to the wind. His social status, his connections, his friendships, gone. His plans for his life up to that point, completely over. Completely. As Paul tells the Corinthians, since he met Jesus, he was relentlessly persecuted, right? Not just like once or for a brief time, but all the time. He was beaten with rods three times, flogged five separate occasions. He's been imprisoned a number of times. He has been shipwrecked and stoned and hungry and homeless and conspired against by those who were once his friends. He has been, as he writes in Corinthians, in constant danger, in danger from rivers, from robbers, from his own people, from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Paul's life since he met Jesus on the road to Damascus has essentially been like the life and experience of Job except without the ending, right? Without getting it all back at the end. He's just lost it all. It's all been taken from him. And now Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, probably about 30 years after he met Jesus. He writes from a prison cell. He's an old man now. He's unmarried. He's childless. He has no inheritance to give to anyone. And as he looks back on his life, as he looks back on those 30 years since he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, this is what he says. 
But whatever gain I had, means the gain that he had had up until that point in his life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, Paul writes, he says, you know what? I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And friends, he means it. Like he knows that. That's what his experience has been. He says, I count those things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Three times in these verses, Paul emphasizes the loss that he has experienced after his encounter with Christ. Indeed, he says, for the sake of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of everything. And it's so important for us to see, beloved, that Paul is not in any way speaking metaphorically when he says that. He really has done it. He really has lost everything. But we must also see this. He regrets none of it. None of it. And why? Because all of those things, as important as they are, as significant as they had seemed, are as rubbish, Paul says. They are nothing compared to what? Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing that he has lost, Paul says, is worth comparing to what it means to gain Christ and to be found in Christ, to be united to Jesus, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus. And what I want for you to see, beloved, is that Paul is laying out his life as a model for you. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it has always meant. Paul does not consider what he has experienced to be unusual. In a few verses, he's going to say, join me, imitate me. Do as I do, because he knows that the kind of loss that he has experienced is what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. He knows this is what Jesus promised. And more than that, he knows this is what Jesus requires. Because there is nothing that we can value or cling to, nothing at all in this world that is worth comparing to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And friends, as we close this morning, just know we all have to reckon with this. Like you have to reckon with what Paul says here and what Jesus says and what you read about the lives of the saints. All of us in a thousand different ways throughout all the years of our lives must answer this fundamental question, how valuable is it really to know Christ Jesus, my Lord? How valuable is it really 
to be found in Christ? And the way we answer that question really is what we do in response to Jesus when he begins to take things from us. When we begin to suffer what Paul describes, loss, our freedom, our security, our dreams, our plans, for whatever we think is absolutely essential for a happy and successful life. Because Jesus comes along and he says, no, actually, that's not required for your life. And then the question becomes, what do we do? How much do we value him? Because make no mistake, friends, I don't want to hide this from you. Jesus doesn't bargain with people. He doesn't negotiate. He just doesn't. It is his way alone. And nothing, if you follow him, will be off limits. Nothing in your life will be off limits to him. Not your health, not your love life, not your house, not your friends or your job or your parents or anything. None of it will be off limits to the hand of Christ. Because he really does mean for you to love him more than anything, more than father or mother, more than brother or sister, more than husband or wife, more than son or daughter, more than anything at all that you might value or call precious or try to say, you know, Jesus, this part of my life, is that's out of bounds. And Jesus says, no, it's not. The path of discipleship to our Lord always takes the shape of the cross. Always. And there are no shortcuts, friends, on this path. There are no alternate routes to the final destination, right? It is his way or no way. But I do promise you this. If you do this, if you trust him, if you relinquish your life to him, there is such freedom and joy in counting whatever you have gained as loss for the sake of Christ. You must hear that in these words from the Apostle Paul. This is not a difficult exchange for him, friends. He is not conflicted about it. He's saying, rejoice. Rejoice with me. Rejoice in the Lord. He's saying there is such freedom and joy in this way, counting everything as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord. He is saying there is such freedom and joy in suffering the loss of all things for the sake of Christ and counting them as rubbish in order that you might gain Jesus and be found in him. He is saying there is so much freedom and joy here. It is like the man with the treasure buried in a field who sold everything he had to, to go and buy that field. He did it with joy, Jesus says. It's the freedom and joy of the merchant who gives up everything he has to buy the pearl of great price. It is the freedom and joy of an old man looking back on his life who was once called Saul, who had lost everything at the hands of Jesus, who would soon have his life ended by beheading at the hands of Caesar. 
but died knowing this, that one day, one day, having become like Jesus in his death, he would also become like Jesus in his resurrection from the dead. And that was worth everything. Everything. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your Son, our Lord, not only for his love and his death and his resurrection, but, Father, for his infinite worth, that he is more valuable than anything in our lives. Help us, Lord, to love him in that way and to open our lives to him that he might make us like himself. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.